0: Welcome to Trek in the Time of Corona. In his 1972 book, The World of Star Trek, David Gerrold wrote that science fiction at its best was the postulation of an alternate reality with which to comment on this one. On this podcast, a fan of Trek and a fan of everything but Trek will come together to search for reflections of this pandemic life by watching and discussing contagious disease-themed stories from the Star Trek universe. My name is Brian Apple, and I am here with Caroline Harmandero. Today's episode from Enterprise, The Observer Effect. Original air date, January 21st, 2005. Unbeknownst to the crew of the Enterprise. While several way teams are making a series of observations on a planet below, a non-corporeal species has taken up residence on the ship. This species the Organians have possessed the bodies of Reed and Mayweather for the express purpose observing the reaction of the human species when a contagious disease from the planet's surface makes its way on board. On their way back from the surface, Trip develops a horrendous and uncontrollable cough. Hoshi makes sure to alert the ship and then pilots the shuttle pod the rest of the way. Both go immediately to isolation where they are met by Archer and Phlox, who make observations and assess the situation. No sooner are the medkits passed into the chamber than Hoshi begins showing symptoms as well, indicating that the illness is very likely contagious. The possessed Reed and Mayweather, as they do for much of the story, compare the human reactions to those they observed in the Klingons and Cardassians. They discuss odds and the inevitability that someone on the ship will die during their observations. Hoshi and Trip begin a treatment to ease their symptoms when a possessed Mayweather appears at their window and questions them about their condition. At the same time, the possessed Reed makes his way to sickbay to question Phlox about his approach to the illness. Neither of these attempts produce much information, as each party is either far too busy dying or far too busy working to prevent the dying to produce much information. Trip and Hoshi begin to get to know each other in the isolation chamber. Soon, Phlox discovers that the virus is silicon-based and will kill Tripp and Hoshi in a matter of hours. Archer informs Phlox that he is their only hope, and Phlox assures Archer that he will do his best. Armed with this doom and gloom, Archer goes to the isolation chamber to speak with the patient. He shares that both Phlox and Sapal are working on a cure, though Tripp doesn't like his chances, knowing that their immune systems cannot fight off such disease. Mayweather and Reed, still possessed, argue some more about what they should or should not be doing. The possessed Reed insists they are only there to observe and quotes statistics about which species did what, when, and how many times. The possessed Mayweather is skeptical about the aims of the mission. They decide to increase their observation field by inhabiting more members of the crew. Tripp and Hoshi continue to get to know each other in isolation, but are soon startled by the faces of Phlox and T'Pol, now possessed by the Organians, who are observing them. The obvious, why aren't you all the way back in sickbay trying to cure us, is asked, driving away the unwanted guests. Archer, discussing the situation with Reed Mayweather, to whom the Organians have returned, shares that he knows that the Klingons did not find a cure because signatures of an exploded shuttle remain in the space around the planet indicating that the infected Klingon party was not even given a chance to return to the ship. Back in isolation, a delirious Hoshi escapes the chamber and puts the whole ship in danger by wandering around in a state of fevered delirium. Trip is able to track her down and bring her back, but it is clear that time is running out. In order to prevent the same from happening again, an extremely strong sedative is ordered to be given to each of them, assuring that they will sleep through the rest of the ordeal. Phlox reveals to Archer that he believes that there is a slim chance that a limited but powerful burst of radiation to the body may kill off the virus, but it may also kill off the body as well. The Organians just can't find a place to argue, so they end up taking the heavily sedated bodies of Trip and Hoshi, who they mistakenly believe to be sleeping, not sedated. Standing up in the midst of their argument, again about the purpose and outcome of their observations, they are observed by Flocks, who, checking on the vital signs of Trip and Hoshi, is perplexed. He begins to move to investigate when Archer and T'Pol, now possessed, enter into the sick bay. Phlox is infuriated by the arrogance, disregard for life, and unwillingness to help that the Organians display just before they erase his memory. The only way to put Phlox's radiation plan into place is to move the patients from the isolation room to the sick bay. This must be done manually. It is decided that Archer and Phlox will perform this job fully done up in their spacesuits, Arriving at the isolation chamber, they find Hoshi on the verge of death and trip not far behind. After carrying them to sickbay, Hoshi flatlines on the table before even getting her dose of radiation. The life-saving actions to restart her heart cannot be done with the cumbersome spacesuit on. Before Phlox can remove his gloves, Archer stops him and proclaims, I'll be your hands. Mayweather and Reed, possessed, are flummoxed by Archer's sacrifice, remarking that no one has ever done that before. Unfortunately, Hoshi remains dead, and the radiation treatment they give to Tripp fails as well. And now, the captain has been exposed to the virus and must stay in the contaminated sickbay, waiting for his own eventual demise. It is here to Archer that one of the Organians rebel against protocol, and makes his presence known through the possession of Hoshi's dead body. Much to the dismay of the other Organian, who makes himself known through Tripp's almost dead body, after explaining the original purpose of their mission, Archer asks them, begs them, to make an observation that no Organian has ever made before. What does it feel like to experience compassion? And suddenly, all is well. And forgotten trip and archer are healed hoshi is alive and there is no explanation that flocks can find for how this miracle happened this is not troubling to them because what matters in that moment is that it has happened leaving the enterprise now back in the bodies of reed and mayweather the organians conclude that the humans may soon be ready for first contact to be made and time is running short The Organians only have about 5,000 years to prepare.
1: What did you think of the episode?
0: Well, it's one of my favorite Star Trek episodes of anything, I mean, of any series. And it's the one that I actually watched first as soon as we went into stay-at-home order territory because it's the first one I thought of as having to do with a contagious virus. Although I, I really, especially after the last week, kind of disagree, or maybe not disagree, but I'm not feeling particularly hopeful that the observers would come to the same conclusion about us, yeah, that, that right. they did in this ep- in this episode, right? So, but it it's what I just really like this episode.
1: I can see why. I feel like it was more of a more of a plot twist than uh, we've seen in any of the episodes we've watched so far.
0: Because you've only seen one other episode of Enterprise, and because you aren't familiar with the characters the fact that two of the characters had been possessed before the show even began was i should have given you a warning about that
1: oh you mean they they become possessed in a different episode
0: no no but the episode starts when they're playing chess at the very beginning they're already they're already possessed
1: so you can tell that that's not them talking because you know that they speak differently
0: well yeah, you can kind of tell and then the last few lines that they say you know for sure that it's not them. But if you hadn't if you're not like this is the this is the middle of the fourth season, which was the last season. So you if you've been watching the show the whole time, you really know that something's off about them, I think. So and and I should I should have warned you about that.
1: Oh no, don't worry about it. It was great.
0: Well, I'm not worried about it, but just reflecting on my role as the fan in this in this scenario, uh, I should have guided you more surely. So, what do you want to start talking about? Because I have a few things, but maybe we can we can. What do you want to start with?
1: Well, I thought it was interesting because we just watched that other Enterprise episode where yeah. Archer ends by. Deciding to be a non-interventionist in (laughs) another species' evolutionary path and not curing them of a disease that would save, you know, 50 million people. And this time he's making the opposite argument and also sort of coming off as like humanity's most compassionate human. So I thought that was an interesting contrast. You know, obviously I like him a whole lot more in this episode.
0: Oh, yeah. And and certainly, our listeners will remember that we had a disagreement about that, and well, not a disagreement. I, I regretted re- having to agree with you about Archer's <laughs> about Archer's behavior in the in the previous episode that we watched from Enterprise. One, so I was thinking about that. Obviously, in that um, in that we had that disagreement, and I was wondering if there's anything in the difference between thinking of a population as a whole and the structure that population takes and then the individual stories within that population. And the reason why I'm thinking about that obviously because I can't I know this this conversation's mainly about COVID-19 but obviously we can't ignore what's been layered on top of COVID-19 as if to emphasize the disparities that are structured around race in our country. But in, in an argument I was having on Twitter, someone used the anti-Black Lives Matter argument that we've had a black president. And it's like there's this whole difference when you work on a macro level and a micro level. And in this episode, it's very much dealing with the micro level where Archer wants to save these individual lives. But Wait. when talking about an entire structure of a society, he might be thinking differently. Not that it that, that excuses what he did, but it's it's like being able to look at both differently is I think something that we are capable of doing, maybe.
1: Right. And that's definitely one of the things we want in a in a leader is to maintain the level of personal compassion when looking at the whole. And that's um you know, not something that um, our leader is doing right now, um, not bringing that level of pers- interpersonal compassion up to the national decision-making level, even not even in any kind of performative way, like not even, you know, saying it in messaging or whatever. But I wonder, I thought another parallel... So besides the connection to his last, which he refers to when he had to make that decision and how hard it was.
0: He, he did, he did.
1: But another connection in terms of our episodes is that the symbolism of the glove, because we we started out with oh, Tremolin man. in Excellent. the original series accidentally taking his glove off and starting a chain reaction. And and now we have Archer taking his glove off for um self-sacrificing.
0: That is amazing. I I didn't even think of that.
1: Yeah. So I think, um, and that sort of leads to, you know, what, what do we want in a leader like this self-sacrifice and putting yourself at risk when he's, you know, helping to Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. do the procedure on Hoshi and then what constitutes a good enough reason to put yourself and your team at risk. And I think that has come up so much This week in terms of, and last week in terms of the George Floyd protests against police brutality and sort of all these people who were really, really careful about not being around anyone over the past three months, deciding to go out into the street and protest. So sort of this hierarchy of like what's important enough. And do we, you know, like you mentioned on social media, people judging each other and I think talking about others' motives and why it's, it's okay for young African-American people to, you know, show up and sell me things and make my cappuccino, but it's it's not okay for them to, you know, protest centuries of abuse and terrorism. So, you know, there's this piece about like, what's, what's a big enough reason that that scene really brings up?
0: For me, too. Uh, so many, so many beautiful points in what you just said. And not only the connection to the first episode that we watched, but also the idea that there are people who are taking the risk intentionally right now for the right reasons. And there are people, I get the sense, in seeing a lot of people who are taking those risks. Some of them are are outright saying that they're, they're taking the risk because they can and they're the appropriate people to take the risk. Just like Archer said to the doctor, the ship needs a doctor more than it needs a captain right now. And I feel like there are people who are making very intentional decisions to take a risk right now, whether that's professionally or personally. And I'm thinking about the actor from Star Wars who, when he was giving the speech in London and he said, I'll probably never work in Hollywood again. Like that's a very real risk to him. But in his mind, he was kind of saying, or not, not, maybe not in his mind. He was kind of saying there that this is the role that I, it's more important for me to play this role right now than any role I might get in any future uh, movie or play or TV show.
1: Right. And then he got 47 offers to be in different movies.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right.
1: That was great. Yeah.
0: The other one other thing that you said about the performative things Mm -hmm. and because I was trying to think the second time that I watched this, is it, is it appropriate for like, would it would a captain really be the one with the doctor moving these bodies? And The thing that it does, though, for the captain to do that is it's saying that he is willing to put himself in harm's way. He is willing to do the hard job. He's not going to back away and ask someone else to take the risk that he's not willing to take. And you're right. We're not even seeing that kind of symbolic risk taking from most of our leaders and it's, it's really, you don't realize how important those things are when, uh, when they're happening. And sometimes you can even think that they're kind of worthless, but now that they're not happening, just how, well, in some ways good, because it's furthering the conversation along a lot faster than, than it maybe would if there, if there was too much placating going on and pretending to change. So, but it, it it is a noticeable absence.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm sure that um, Trump and his supporters feel that they are, that he is, you know, sacrificing himself daily by continuing to go out in public and without protective equipment on and stuff. But it seems like there's really simple things he could do to set a good example for people like wear a mask that he's refusing to do. So it's kind of this, it's kind of a mixed bag. But then, like, on the other hand, you have this self this other version of self-sacrificing which is like you know biden kind of staying in a lot and trying to set a good example for sheltering in place even if it's gonna cost him the election so it's kind of it's weird there's like these various versions of it
0: yes, very weird and and I and I think well one did you see the news today Trump went to a factory where they make the swabs for the COVID-19 tests and he refused to wear a mask and so the entire batch that they had made during his visit had to be thrown away.
1: Oh my god.
0: But then I also got the sense that he's using the symbolism of our strength and that's why he doesn't want to... I, I think it's an excuse. I think he's a very vain, shallow person and he's not wearing a mask because he is embarrassed to do something that feels as if it's drawing attention to him in any way that is not the standard appearance that a, a strong man is supposed to have
1: yeah, a strong young man like he's he refuses to wear glasses even though he needs them badly anyway um I was talking to our mutual friend who is um a big leader in social justice issues in town, and she was saying um, she's sort of sick and tired of people judging each other for go- you know either going out or staying in because it, at least in the context of these protests, because as African Americans, they've they've had to make those decisions in the worst circumstances for hundreds of years and have thrown darts at each other for making different types of choices about it, about whether to run and escape slavery, about whether to right. protest during our boycott, and on and on. So, sort of how it affects people's families and elders and children and wanting people to stop adding another layer of judgment on each other Sure. around that.
0: That, that makes a lot of sense uh, hearing you say that.
1: One of the kind of brilliant things that Archer does at the end is convince them to help by telling them that if they help, they'll. that's the best way for them to learn. Um, so, you know, the, I guess the main theme of the episode has to do with the observer effect and how you sort of change something by watching it. And I think he sort of talks them into taking on the danger of helping by... Saying, you know, this really is the best way for you to learn is to do it yourself and, and learn about human compassion by exercising it, which is very sort of sneaky and brilliant of him.
0: So poignant to what, to ha- where the disconnect of so many authority figures are right now who are really whining about not having the order that's pre established respect it even if it oppresses people it's still the order we have to respect it and not having the understanding that just being able to feel compassion for something and uh hear what other people are saying about the order could go a long way to well even protecting the order frankly i mean it's i mean it's not necessarily what i want to have happen but you see all these places and frankly, in Baltimore, the fact that so there seems to be so little agitation from the police department is helping keep the um, protests peaceful because the police aren't starting the agitation. In other cities where police are not bothering to feel compassion for the people who are expressing these feelings of uh, marginalization, they're acting out because they feel disrespected and that's creating the violence that then they're saying they need to be there to take care of. It's just. um, Yeah. I I,
1: I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it is obviously they're, obviously they're putting their lives on the line all the time and it's incredibly difficult job, but um, the acceptance of the idea that there's going to be some, some bad apples is what has to end. I mean, there just can't be. There can be zero in a job where you get a gun. So I think um, it's really, uh, I think one of the things I hear activists say is that the Baltimore Police Department hasn't changed in these intervening five years since Freddie Gray. And that's the part I just, I can't agree with at all. Um, I think that there's been so many changes um, for the better. And I think that's one of the reasons why you know, protests aren't getting triggered to violence by cops is because they've been under federal observation for five years now. And I've had to make huge changes in how they do policing and, and it's nowhere near enough, but we're far, far ahead of a lot of other cities because of all the different interventions that happened five years ago. And the day by day work that The activists have done in those five years as well as the department itself
0: and i can yeah and i can i mean i can agree i agree and disagree with 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 elements of that that might not connect because there's one part where i do want to feel i do want to understand that their lives are in quote unquote danger but many of the reasons why their lives are in danger is because of the structure that they're being employed to protect. Once you remove this aspect of power that seeks to protect the system, some of that danger goes away because they're no longer just being employed. Just They're not, being, they're not just being employed to protect the system. they would actually be, be, being employed to protect the populace. Or the people or the individuals. But that might not I mean that doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about.
1: I agree that a lot of what they're protecting is needs to be dismantled. But the most dangerous moment for a cop is intervening in a in a domestic dispute. So that's not that's an example of something that's never going to go away. Like there will always be couples that fight. So that no matter Whether we overturn white supremacy or not, there will always be aspects of the job that will be super dangerous.
0: And I I do agree with that. However, I believe that if the funding model changes and we invest money that's right now going to address domestic violence through, well, I mean, the old hammer and nail uh, analogy, if we continue to address domestic violence, violence by only funding the hammer, then we're never actually going to look at what the actual solutions could be beyond just sending people there to forcibly break it up. And and I think that's that's where we're not being imaginative enough.
1: Being myself a researcher, I thought this episode was really great. Um, in terms of the discipline of research and the balance between wanting to intervene in something and wanting to get a clear view of what it is, and sort of the need to observe from a safe distance. And also, it just made me think about all the doctors. I just have this new boss who's, you know, technically an MD and does research all day long for decades, but I wonder about all these thousands and thousands of sort of research doctors and whether they wish they could put on a white coat and help out during this pandemic. And I think there's a parallel with your profession of teaching that there's just so many bureaucrats telling teachers how to teach and researchers researching on how to best teach and not enough people in the classroom. (laughs) And I feel like during a pandemic, I feel that way also about sort of, healthcare professionals. There's just, I just work with so many health related researchers and I wish temporarily, you know, help out with this huge load that needs to be lifted. The whole concept of like, you can't watch something without changing it. And like Confucius had said, in order to taste a pear, you have to change it by taking a bite, something like that. I think that's such a important piece that I think a lot about. And that scene where they're just Kind of like sick of the researcher, <laughs> and they're like, "Look, you know, we kind of we need to get some sleep here." Can you then trip? Kind of approaches that same observation window, almost like in prayer, and he's like, "Look, whoever is out there." So it kind of it was this great sort of mixture of like, whoever's in charge of this thing, whoever is making decisions about my life, you know, can we get some help? And I think. It was the, I thought the window was like a really powerful metaphor for a lot of different things.
0: And, but then there's also this element of um, intentionally creating the observer effect, where, which is what's happening right now with the protests, which has been happening for decades and decades and decades, saying, show it like sh- shining a light on the things that are happening that are unjust and wrong so that people observe them so that they will change. But then a lot also that I'm seeing on Twitter is every time people post videos of police officers doing the things that they are doing that is causing physical harm to peaceful protesters, somebody makes the comment like, they know they're being filmed now. Like the, the observer effect is blatantly not happening because they know they're being filmed and they're doing the same stuff that they always do, which is also something that I was interested In thinking about
1: yeah and then there's also a lot of people that will say you know if I were there I would have stopped the cop and or talked the cop out of it or stood in the way instead of picking up my phone and videotaping it which I've definitely thought many 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 times and um and then of course I second guess myself and say you know that's ridiculous you would have been too scared or whatever yeah I think all those things are so huge and just in day-to-day life like everything thinking about how something's going to be received on social media has become such a part of people's thought process and that part feels really sad to me but the the balance between like when you're trying to do activism whether to whether posting something is just sort of vain or whether it actually could get other people involved
0: Mm -hmm. And, and i think it's an important one because also i mean we're coming at it from a the the perspective of people who have certain levels of privilege and it's important that we are speaking out about this about things that happen but it's also important that we're not presenting the narrative as our narrative
1: it does you mean like not um claiming to have these original thoughts the,
0: the the main reason that I struggle with it is because I know my own vanity I am the center of every story I tell about my experiences and so I know for me I need to be very very careful when I am telling stories about my experiences that should not center a cis straight white male I, I don't think, that I should star in that narrative. And so because of the way social media is designed, not only am I starring in that narrative in my head, but when I put it out to the world, I'm starring in that narrative for the world. And I think it's something that I need to be careful about the way I present that. Not that I'm on social media anymore in terms of, in in that regard, but, it's something that I did have to think about. For me, knowing my own <sighs> sins, I guess. Yeah. At the end, or not at the end. No, at the end, um, they say the one the one character who has been possessed by the Organians um, says, after 10,000 years, the rules need to change. Yeah. And that's like the constant refrain throughout history every time we have one of these seismatic shifts in kind of the social arrangement of humanity
1: yeah I think um it's kind of like a comical period of time that he's been following these rules and I think it's Probably no mistake that it's uh, the one African-American character who's saying, you know, these rules need to change after all this time toward greater compassion and greater connection. So in this episode a highly evolved species has decided that rather than observe human suffering at a distance, they'll break all the rules to intervene and cure the outbreak that's plaguing the Enterprise crew. This is in contrast to Archer's previous choice not to save the 50 million less highly evolved Valachians that he and Phlox decided to abandon in an earlier episode about culture, evolution, and self-determination. Reminding us of Tremolins removed glove in the pilot podcast about the original Star Trek series, Archer has now deliberately taken off his glove to operate on Hoshi and exposed himself to the deadly disease. So this time, the more evolved species chooses compassion, inspired by a view of Archer's human compassion. This month in America, many of us are inspired to protest ongoing police brutality against African-Americans. And what we are doing in the process is deciding how much to expose ourselves to a deadly disease, how much to break the rules, how much to dig into our compassion. It was likely no mistake that the character breaking the rules to show compassion and do what's right was hosted in the body of the episodes only African-American, a group that has risked torture, murder, and rape to stand up for what's right over the centuries. Speaking now to fellow white people, I hope you can find courage in that example. They say that if you ever wondered what you would have done in Hitler's Germany in 1938, or during the 1950s and 60s civil rights movement, you are actually doing it right now. Everyone decides for themselves how to keep their families safe from disease or from terrorism. When it comes to ending police brutality, there's much to be done and many lanes to do it in. Even while we keep our literal masks and gloves on, metaphorically the time has come to take off the protection of our privilege and stand up for what's right.